Well, let's go to Luke uh, chapter 22, verses 35 to 38. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. But what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Let's pray. God, we come to your word this morning, desperate, hungry, needy, thirsty, running on empty. We know that uh, we can't live today on yesterday's grace. We need fresh mercy. And we also know that you provide it. Your, Your mercies are new every morning. So God, would you quiet our hearts in these moments? If there's any foaming of the sea, if there's any static, if there's any wandering thoughts, wandering hearts, God, quiet us. I mean, you're the reason we're here. Not just here on a Sunday morning, but here on this planet. You're the reason. So God, I pray we would lean into you this morning. We'd lean into our reason for being. We'd find you more and more our God and Savior. In Jesus. It's in the name of Christ I ask these things. Amen. Um, Okay, guys. So let me begin um, this way. Uh, I, I don't know how many of you guys have heard of uh, Paul Tripp. He's a well-known uh, biblical counselor, awesome guy, uh, great material on almost every kind of subject you could imagine when it comes to sanctification in the Christian life. Uh, he's written a book on marriage, and the title of this book is um, What Did You Expect? And I love it because it's essentially his almost sort of blunt way of saying, uh, we come into marriage— And we naturally just kind of bring these expectations and these uh, thoughts that, hey, this other person is going to fill us up. Uh, We're going to find satisfaction. We're going to find life. We're going to find joy. And then oftentimes we are surprised, perhaps even blindsided by the fact that it's hard. That marriage is not as easy as we thought not to mention not as satisfying or fulfilling all the time. Now, is it great? Is it a blessing? Is it, you know, a a cause for rejoicing? Is it satisfying? Sure. But is it hard? Well, every person listening in or here that's married could give a hearty amen to that. It requires a lot of work and, and it's hard, a lot of commitment. And there are a lot of times where you step towards a person that, you know, you don't always feel filled up by. You feel poor, like you're pouring out. And here's where I'm going with this. You may be wondering, is this a sermon on marriage? No, it's not. Um, but I think what Paul Tripp is onto there with regard to marriage and this idea of expectations is important, not just uh, with reference to marriage, but also perhaps even more so uh, with regard to the Christian life and the sort of expectations we come Uh, we come with when we come to Jesus, when we uh, make that decision to follow him, when we, quote-unquote, become a Christian. Uh, We need to understand that we come with a certain set of expectations, perhaps uh, directed by, you know, what a few people have told us or maybe a few verses that we've read or, or books or something like that. But we come with these expectations, with these ideas, and what we need to understand is sometimes, perhaps even a lot of the times, these expectations are a bit off. 
you know, maybe we come in and we think that God is going to fix everything right away. That he's going to just, you know, our bank account, it's going to be full by the time we're done praying the sinner's prayer. (laughs) And when we open our eyes and we get on Wells Fargo, we realize, oh, no. And sometimes, actually coming to follow Christ actually makes things a little bit more difficult in certain senses, right? I could get at um, the the whole issue that I'm going to be moving towards this morning uh, by asking a simple question. Do you think... Uh, Coming to Christ will make your life happier or will it make it harder? Will it make it happier or will it make it harder? I wonder how you would answer the question if you just someone were to ask you. I'll tell you how I'll answer the question. Yes. Yes. Will it make it happier, more satisfying, more fulfilling? Yes. More blessing? Yes. Will it make it harder? more difficult, more challenging in certain senses? Absolutely. Absolutely. We tend to want the first part of this equation. Uh, We like the blessing. We like him coming to make us happier. And then we're sometimes, as in marriage and other things, blindsided um, when it's not all that, when there's also hardship involved in it when there's suffering even that sometimes comes for the children of God, in particular because they're children of God. You say, this isn't what I signed up for. We've got to get our expectations um, set appropriately. And I think this is really what Jesus is after with his disciples in our text here this morning, and I think it's really what he's after with us as well. The Christian walks not just a happy road, but a hard road as well. So here's what I've got for us. Two main points, pretty simple. Uh, first, yes, it's, hap- it's harder. <laughs> Second point, yes, it's harder, or it's happier. Sorry, I got this mixed up. Yes, it's harder. Yes, it's happier. We'll start with the, the negative. We'll start with the downside because uh, this is really where Jesus uh, begins in this text, and then we'll end on that happy note. Uh, we'll be ready to sing some songs. <laughs> so let's uh, dive in then. Yes, it's harder. Um, now, we've got to remember where we are in Luke's gospel. If you're just kind of tuning in uh, with us, uh, we've been going through, you know, for years now. And we've come to, really, Thursday night, the last week of Jesus' life. A few short hours, uh, he's going to be strung up on the cross, uh, gasping for breath and air and left for dead. That's where this is headed in a few short hours. He knows that's what's coming, but his disciples, in spite of how many times he's tried to tell them, clearly don't. They've missed the mark. They don't get it. So he's going to come at it here from yet another angle. Things are going to get harder. And I want you to have, you know, wrong expectations here. I want you to know what's going on. So here's what he says. Look at verses 35 and 36 again. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or a knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, Nothing. Well, he said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Now, um, If you're reading in and you're looking carefully here, uh, I think you see probably what I see, uh, namely two pressing questions that sort of emerge immediately from these verses. And uh, that's what I wanted to look at here with us uh, now. Um, To get into this first question, though, I'm going to have to kind of back into it a bit. So bear with me just for a moment. We need to know what Jesus is referring to here because he's talking about, hey, when I sent you out before. What happened there? How'd that go? Did you lack anything? They say no. Well, what's he talking about? Uh, In particular, he's uh, referring uh, back to some experiences he's had with his disciples, uh, namely in in, uh, Luke 9 and Luke 10, uh, I think. Uh, Both of those situations, we see Jesus sending out uh, his disciples, giving them instructions as they go to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, And as he's giving them instructions, he says the sorts of things that he uh, reminds them uh, of here. So Luke 9, 3 through 4, uh, for example, he says this, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. 
And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. He sends out the twelve in Luke 9 in that way. Don't bring anything. Don't bring anything. And then Luke 10. Uh, now it's perhaps uh, 72 or something, maybe 70. We're not quite sure from the manuscripts uh, the exact number. But he sends out more disciples now with the exact same sort of set of um, instructions. The idea, it seems to me, largely is this. Um, don't worry about bringing anything. Don't worry about your stuff. Don't worry about you know, where you're going to sleep, what you're going to eat. God will provide. God will protect you. You're doing the Lord's work. Well, the Lord will provide. And He'll protect. And this is what I think starts to move us towards the pressing question. Because if that's what we make of these earlier instances that Jesus is here referring to. Hey, when I told you go to, and don't bring anything, did you, did you lack? No, nothing. Well, now I'm telling you, you better, you better pack a suitcase. You better bring all you need. You better get it all together because you're going to need every little bit of it. The question that emerges in this then is, is Jesus saying that we better take all of these things to supply our needs now uh, because God no longer will? Is he saying now, hey, uh, before we had God's care and covering and now we don't. Now we're uh, left to fend for ourselves, as it were. Before, you, God had your back. But now, good luck. Now, if that's what we come away with, I think we've missed the point entirely. That idea, that interpretation of this uh, instruction here would, would cut against the grain of, of everything that Jesus says elsewhere and the promises he's made to us. And so we know, wait, this can't possibly be what he's saying. He's been working against our, our proclivity to self-reliance and independence all along. He can't now here be saying, well, I guess you're on your own. No, that can't be it. So we, we look under the hood and here's what we find. When we, when we kind of uh, pop the hood, check out what's underneath this, uh, and some of these stories he's referencing, um, I think we can kind of see what he's after. But here's the nub of it. When you go back to Luke 9 and you go back to Luke 10, how is it that God would provide for his disciples? How is it that God cared for them, protected them, and this sort of thing? Well, I'll tell you how. It was through the warm welcome of fellow Jews, their countrymen and others. Uh, it's in Luke 9, but Luke 10 makes it even more explicit when he says this, verses 4 through 8. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house. This house that welcomed you. Eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. So how are they going to get their bread? How are they going to get a place to sleep? Through the warm welcome of, of, of others. Through open hearts and open doors of people as they go. You see, the initial reception was uh, largely positive because Jesus was a miracle worker. And it was great. We, we like this. This is good. And you see, this is what Jesus is saying is about to change. It's not, it's not that God is no longer going to provide for his kids and you're on your own. It's just that the means of his provision is going to change radically here. You can no longer expect warm welcome from those who opened their doors to you before. Instead, you can expect the opposite. Closed door, deadbolt, rejection. Worst case, persecution, martyrdom. So that's the reason here for this shift in his instruction. Times are changing. They liked me back when they thought I was here to give them their best life now. But now that they realize I've come to die for sin, and I want to talk about things that they aren't interested in discussing, like repentance, 
and the need for forgiveness. Man, once they catch that, once they see what's going on truly, why I'm really here, and they're going to want to kill me, and they're going to come after you next. No doubt, I think some of you have probably tasted of this in various degrees. Um, I wonder if there's anyone else here who, when you came to Christ, you know, you lost your entire friend group. You know, you had guys you thought were tight or gals you thought uh, were tight, and then you come to Jesus, and now you're the prude. Now you're the lame. You know, listen, this guy just wants to talk to me about you know, meaningful stuff instead of just, you know, get hammered on the weekends? I don't think so. No thanks. And so you lose your friends. You lose uh, connection to people. And this is, you know, uh, not even the half of what people experience when they come to Jesus around, uh, around the world, right? And some of you have probably tasted even more severe, uh, you know, aspects of that with family or others turning on you because of your association with Christ. Now, this leads then really to question number two. Um, and uh, this question is going to turn on this idea of the sword that Jesus mentions here because it kind of opens up a whole other avenue of confusion, <laughs> at least possible confusion. Uh, in verse 36, the latter part, you notice he says, let one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Hey, Donald, I continue to feel, I don't know if it's just this speaker there may be nothing we can do. Are you guys hearing that? I'm sorry if you are. Oh, okay. Maybe it's just me. It's very um, um, high frequency, kind of shrill and almost ready to, but if you guys don't hear it, I'm good. Um, all right. It's turning on this idea of the sword where he says, let one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Uh, here's, I think, the idea that Jesus is getting at here. He says, uh, essentially, in view of what's about to change, you're going to need a sword more than you're going to need clothes on your back. Like, that's how drastic, that's how severe, that's how intense this is going to get. You're going to wish, instead of clothes on your back, you had a sword at your hip. Now, much like the first question, then, we're kind of left wondering, well, what in the world is, is, is this supposed to mean? Is Jesus saying here that we are now to kind of bring the kingdom of God in by force? Same sort of idea. Is it on us and we use our power and our strength? And now the way that uh, Christ wants us to advance the kingdom is going to be by way of the sword. Is that what he is saying here? But again, it cuts against the grain. If this is how we interpret, it cuts against the grain of what we see in the rest of Scripture and what Jesus does elsewhere. Thank you, brother. Let me show, uh, show you this, spend a little time on this and, and make sure we're clear. Jesus isn't saying pick up a sword and go take down the enemy in a literal, physical sense. But let me, let me show you uh, a few pieces of evidence here. First, it's right on the surface there in verse uh, 38, I think, um, when these disciples, hearing Jesus' instructions, they kind of put forward two swords. You notice this? And how does Jesus respond? This is the last, part, last verse of our text. How does Jesus respond? I love it. He says, it is enough. It's enough. And now, obviously, there are different ways you could interpret that. And people have. They've spun off different things. And there probably are layers of meaning to it. But here's one thing we at least need to see. Uh, if Jesus is really asking them to prepare here for armed combat, it does not take a uh, military strategist to, to recognize two swords probably ain't going to be enough to get the job done. Like, if we're really going to be taking down a Rome here, like perhaps the disciples thought, two swords can be woefully inadequate, right? It's not going to happen, not going to work. And so we know when Jesus says it is enough, it can't be meaning this is sufficient. Like, hey, we can get the job done with that. Thank you, brothers. Instead, I, I think we're then um, pushed towards another interpretation, and it's one that Leon Morris puts well when he says this. Jesus' response, it is enough, means not two will be sufficient, but rather enough of this kind of talk. He dismisses a subject in which the disciples were so hopelessly astray. I feel like I must use this phrase all the time at dinner with my kids. It's enough! Shh! I had enough! 
Something like that might be what's going on. You don't get it, disciples. You still don't see it. I'm not talking about literal swords. I'm not talking about physical force or armament. I'm talking about readiness for spiritual battle, the likes of which, man, this sort of battle you've never seen before. You have no idea what is coming. I'm not talking about Rome. We're talking about the powers of darkness. I'm about sin, Satan, death. That's what we're after here. Now, next piece of evidence for this more figurative and spiritual understanding of the sword here is just what comes a few verses later. Pretty famous story. Uh, some of you probably remember this. But, uh, you know, uh, Jesus is now in Gethsemane. This is Luke 22, 49 through 51. Jesus is now in Gethsemane, and uh, Judas is leading the crowd back to, to where uh, Christ is, and he's going to betray him with a kiss, and the crowd starts to close in, and as one of the guys gets close, here's what one of the brothers, one of the disciples asks Jesus, verse 49, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? In other words, you remember those swords you asked us to get? I mean, we got them. Let's go. I'm ready. Is this the time? One of them, and it doesn't require too much discernment to guess who, in fact, John tells us who it was, Peter, doesn't wait for a response. Instead, he just whips out the sword and slices off the guy's ear. Not a very good shot, right? Like, I assume he was aiming for something more substantial. But thank goodness, this guy's lucky day that Peter was the one on, on call uh, because uh, he just got his ear. But even beyond that, Jesus turns and what does he do? He heals the brother. He doesn't look at Peter and go, well done, good and faithful soldier. Right? Instead, here's what we see. This is what he says in verse 51, very similar to what we see in verse 38. No more of this. Stop it. It's enough. You're not picking up what I'm putting down. Touches the guy's ear, heals him. You could almost kind of see Jesus shaking his head in bewilderment. That's not what I meant. And as he says in Matthew's account of this very same story, Matthew 26, 52 to 53, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? You think I need the sword? I don't need your sword. To advance the kingdom. That's not how this is going to work. Not how the kingdom goes forward. The battle isn't against Judas or Pilate, Caiaphas or Herod or Caesar. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against the powers and principalities of darkness and I will get victory over them, not by wielding the sword, but by laying down my life as a sacrifice for sin rising up on the third. That's how the kingdom of God is going to advance. And, and, and that's what Jesus is, I think, referring to in our text. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, do you realize that in Istanbul, you can go to a museum there and they have preserved, I guess, the swords of Muhammad? The swords! There they are, the power, the authority. And you also realize you cannot find anything like that for Jesus or his apostles. Because it's not how the kingdom goes forward. It's not by literal sword, not by physical armament. He's talking about spiritual readiness here when he's talking to his disciples. And uh, we can see even more of this. Uh, last piece of evidence I'll give you. It, we can see it in the very text that Jesus uses to ground his instruction that these guys get swords ready. What text does he, does he ground all of this in when he's talking about sword? Look at verse um, 36 into verse 37 again. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And then he goes on, for I tell you, now here's the grounds clause, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. You catch what's happening here. 
He's grounding his instruction to these guys to get swords ready in a text that ultimately, when you go back to Isaiah 53, as we'll do in a moment, I mean, you see, it's coming from, he's quoting Isaiah 53, which is all about the suffering servant who's going to lay his life down in love as a sacrifice, not who's going to pick up the sword and fight. Numbered with the transgressors, this is Jesus being counted a sinner and then dying, not picking up the sword, but letting the sword of God's wrath and Rome and Judaism and all that fall on him. So clearly we're not supposed to get from this our call to arms, meaning grab your swords and let's go kill people, enemies out there, physical. No. He's talking about spiritual readiness and spiritual warfare. What he's essentially saying is that the cross is going to throw the world into crisis. Uh, the scriptures talk about how the resurrection of Jesus, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, it really essentially kind of throws the, the uh, world into the last days. The last days. You could see it as almost like a seismic shift that's happening in the plan of redemption, in the storyline of redemption. Things are going to get a little bit more intense. The opposition is going to heat up. The cross throws the world into crisis. And God's people, Jesus is saying, need to be ready. They've got to be ready not to strike down the physical enemy, but actually to strike down every impulse in them to do so. Does that make sense? That's the irony. The sword we wield isn't against, you know, uh, the, the, our enemies and this or that out there. A lot of times it's actually uh, killing the flesh and the impulse we'd have to want to get back at everybody. It takes a whole lot more firepower to fight against sin and overcome the devil than it does to ever overcome Rome or some other worldly power. And that's what Jesus is talking about. It's the sort of thing Paul would later write about in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, when he says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, don't, don't, don't mistake me, Paul says, we are still fighting. We have different sort of weapons. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. He doesn't talk specifically about what those weapons of our warfare are here. But we know texts like Ephesians 6, probably in his mind, that sort of thing, where he says explicitly, listen, man, here's what the warfare looks like. And he talks about even what's the sword of the Spirit? Not something you could fit at your hip, although some people might put their Bible there. It's the Word of God, he says. It's the Gospel and the Scriptures that have an edge sharp enough to cut through the powers of darkness. That's how this war is waged. That's how we're ready. That's how we wield our sword. And that's the sort of thing Jesus is driving at here. The disciples don't get it yet, but they will soon enough. And the question for us before we move on to the second heading is to simply cons consider the fact and, and ask ourselves, do we, do, we, do we get it? Do we understand what the lesson Jesus is, is trying to get across to his disciples here? Is that, has that made its way into our hearts yet? Two implications that spin out from this to help us as we consider first, we should expect hardship, do we? We should expect hardship. Um, some of us perhaps are, are, are bitter with God um, because we came in. Uh, much like a person coming into marriage, expecting the other person to fill them up and then surprised to see that they're a sinner just like them. You get bitter, upset. You slowly work through it, God willing, and then you start extending grace and you realize it was never supposed to be that they fill you, but Christ fills both of you as you pour out to one another. Well, sometimes we come to our Christian life like this and we get, we get these expectations of what God's going to do and then we grow bitter when he doesn't or when things actually get harder. We get disenchanted, we get jaded, much like the disciples after the cross when they're just walking, going, man, we thought he was the one, but there he is dead in the ground. 
Our hopes dashed. What's God doing? Well, always something better. But the road is hard. The road is hard. And, and, and Jesus doesn't mince words on this. He doesn't try to hide it from us. He never said it would be easy. In fact, everywhere he warns the opposite. That's why he sees guys who seem like they want to come with him. And he actually says, are you sure? We go, Jesus, close the sail. This is it. Close the sail. He goes, are you sure? I mean, I don't got anywhere to sleep. Are you sure you want to walk with me? Count the cost, he says. Or hey, unless you uh, uh, take up your cross daily and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Go, Jesus, that's not a way to win people. That's not secret sensitive. It's going to make them turn away. Jesus says, listen, I want them to know what they're getting into. Even with his disciples on, on uh, this Thursday night, John's account of this, man, he goes into a lot more detail on, on the conversations that they were having. And uh, verses 18 through 21 of John 15, uh, he says this, if the world hates you, he just, he just fleshes this out for them even more. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. This is why he was using that text in Isaiah as grounds for, hey, get ready. Because if they're going to number me, even though I'm innocent, even though I'm, I'm following God, if they're going to number me among the transgressors, well, guess what? They're going to do the same with those who follow me. They're going to want you out. Because there's conviction there. There's stuff they don't want to hear about, think about. They're going to want you out. They're going to hate you if they hated me. He wants them to be ready. He wants us to be ready. It's, it, it's going to be hard sometimes. Jesus isn't trying to hoodwink. He's not a salesman or swindler. This isn't a bait and switch. He wants you to come in with eyes wide open. And expect Expect that sometimes it's going to be hard. But then the second implication here is that we should be prepared. That's what he's trying to ultimately get his, get his disciples to do, is not just kind of know this is coming, but be prepared for it. That's the whole point about, you know, sell and get a sword and make sure you're ready. There's a difference between uh, knowing something's coming and actually being ready for it. So to give you an example, uh, I regularly get, and you probably do too, and I'm thankful for them, these little booklets in the mail from like PG&E talking about emergencies and getting ready for you know, planning and that sort of thing, whether it's wildfires or earthquakes, and they tell you kind of what you need to do. And man, I have every intention of preparing. I realize this is a real issue here. Earthquakes, wildfires, it's, it's real. And it's getting more real every season, every year. And so I keep those, and I, I, I have a link to it in my you know, task management system. Man, get the emergency plan ready. I know to expect it, but I've never gotten around to actually figuring it out and coming up with the plan and getting the bags ready and talking to my kids about where are we going to go, what would we do. So in a sense, I expect it, but I'm not prepared. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to make sure doesn't happen to us with regard to the spiritual situation we're in, the crisis we're in in this world. He wants to make sure that we are not kind of growing lax and casual. I think the image of a sword brings up this picture of like a wartime lifestyle. That this isn't just peace time. This isn't just like, hey, eat, drink, and be merry. This is war. That the cross throws the world into crisis. You read Revelation 12. The enemy's thrown down this dragon, and he's he he he's 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 you know going uh, around the earth. He would say to like seek people to destroy those the followers of, of Jesus, the children, the offspring of the woman in that picture. You and I. And ironically, one of the ways he fights, one of the ways this war happens, is by getting you to feel like everything is great. And there's nothing to worry about. And so Jesus is saying, don't just know and expect hardship. Be prepared. Because it's, it's coming. It's here. Are you living as if in wartime? 
Don't be fooled by your prosperity, Americans, especially Bay Area. It's a facade. And in many ways, it distracts you from the real war waging all around. This is what Paul writes of in 1 Corinthians 7, I think, when he says, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Why, Paul? That sounds crazy. For the present form of this world is passing away. He's not saying don't care for your wife and don't care for your job. He's saying don't set your heart there. There's a war going on and this world is going down. Don't go down with that ship. Set your hope firmly on the hope of he- on heaven and on the kingdom of God that's coming. Man, don't get so mixed up in the pleasures and comforts of this life. They will fail you. It's wartime. Are you prepared? Are you in God's word? Are you running with God's people? Are you on mission for him? Or is it just about your bank account, bottom line, getting your little social clique together, finding that marriage and that relationship? If if I were to look at your life, if God were to look at your life, what would he say it was all about? Is this? All the stuff Paul mentions here? Relationships, jobs, I mean, all that stuff's good. But is there a driving aim through it all? Man, I'm, I'm in this for Jesus, with Jesus, heart set on Jesus. That's what it means to be prepared. That's what it means to get rid of your, your, your outer garment and buy a sword. So are you living in, as if in wartime? Are you not just expecting hardship in this life, but actually ready for it? Now, Having said all this, we come to the second point. And it's my great pleasure (laughs) to remind us that coming to Jesus, yes, while in many senses, it will make our lives harder. There will be hardship we will face because of our association, association with him. In another sense, in an even greater sense, Man, coming to Jesus gives us access to the kind of happiness, the kind of joy, the kind of satisfaction this world knows nothing about. I mean, it fills your cup. Is the road harder? Yes. Is it happier? Absolutely. And for this, I just want to take us back to verse 37 and look a little bit more closely at that verse um, that Jesus references in Isaiah 53. But look at Luke 22, 37 again. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he who was numbered with the transgressors. That's the quote. He rips that from Isaiah 53. And yes, it's the grounds, as I said, for why the disciples ought to be ready for you know, rejection and hardship. But this is not the full meaning of that text. Not by a long shot. (laughs) Not even close. When we go back into the context of the Old Testament verse that he's referencing here, we see, man, the main thrust isn't actually, he will suffer, so you will too. No, that's not the main thrust of this. It's quite the opposite, actually. It's, It's, he will suffer in a unique way under the wrath of God, for your sin, in your place, so you don't have to. That's Isaiah 53. In other words, we don't just learn the coming hardship here, we learn the secret to human happiness. We, we, we see the gospel and the surprising love of God. We discern the path out from guilt, shame, and exile. We discover the way back to the one for whom we were created. That's what he's pointing to when he points to Isaiah 53. The road towards fulfillment and happiness and salvation and life runs through this suffering servant that's outlined in this chapter. 
This one who is numbered with the transgressors, though he himself is not one of them. Um, Jesus is quoting here from really what, this isn't just me, I think most all would consider, um, this is the most vivid, the most pronounced Old Testament prophecy of Jesus and his atoning work on the cross that you're ever going to find in the Old Testament. This is it. Uh, In fact, if you were to just sit down, um, if you were to take somebody, you know, who maybe was familiar with Christianity or something like that, and just sit down and read them Isaiah 53, they would think you read to them from the New Testament. That's how vivid it is. That's how picturesque it is. That's how detailed it is. It uh, paints with more color and more detail, I think, than even the gospel accounts themselves do. What Jesus is going to do, what's happening when he's on the cross. And I think this is why Jesus references it here. Thursday night, the shadow of the cross falling on him. I think this is why Luke is jealous to make sure this reference to Isaiah 53 is recorded in his gospel. Because they want us to see all that's about to take place the rejection, the suffering, the death, the resurrection, in light of this Old Testament prophetic utterance, Isaiah 53. Jesus quotes from the very last verse in the chapter, verse 12 of Isaiah 53, and in so doing, he's really just kind of dragging the whole glorious thing in with him. We're going to read it bit by bit in a moment, but before I do, if I have, I told myself I'd check the time on this, just give this a couple minutes. I, I, I think this is so profound. I wanted to say this. Um, I think what we have here, I mean, if you struggle with, you know, reasons for the faith and, and that sort of a thing, I think what we have here is a wonderful apologetic. Um, not, I'm sorry, but defense um, for the Christian faith, the validity of the gospel. Uh, what do I mean by that? Why am I saying that? Well, what I need you to bear in mind is that this text we're about to read, Isaiah 53, written about 27, I think over, uh, 2700, 2700 years ago, uh, and 700 years before Christ. David uh, Barron wrote in the preface to his exposition of Isaiah 53, he he said this, it is beyond even the wildest credulity to believe that the resemblance in every feature and minutest detail between the prophetic portraiture drawn centuries before um, Jesus' advent and the story of his life and death and glorious resurrection as narrated in the Gospels can be mere accident or fortuitous coincidence. He's saying there's just no way you could know all of this 700 years prior to any of it happening. And again, remember, people wrote about the cross, not just in the Gospel accounts, not just Christian books, but even you know, historians and others outside talked about this sort of thing. Uh, But I hear uh, someone perhaps objecting, well, maybe Christians got a hold of, you know, the the Old Testament text, Isaiah 53, and and, and massaged it a little bit to get it to mean what they wanted it to mean. Now that they could see the cross and all that, they kind of took it and, and jammed that back in, massaged it here or there so it fit like a glove now when we look at it. And you may have had a case prior to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 50s, 40s, of uh, 1950s and 40s. Um, Because prior to the Dead Sea Scrolls, man, the earliest copy of Isaiah and and things like that was was 1000 AD. We relied on the Masoretic text for the the Old Testament. 1000 AD, man, that's after the fact. There's a lot of stuff that could have gone on. But with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which uh, many consider to be the most important, most significant uh, uh, architectural manuscript uh, find in the 20th century, and certainly it was, the one book that they found in its entirety was what they call now the, um, the Great Isaiah Scroll. Pretty much the whole thing is there and it comes, it's dated, second century BC. Widespread agreement on that. 100, 200 years before Jesus ever shows up. You can actually go and see this thing in Israel. It's on display. 23 feet long, the scroll of Isaiah. And when you compare Isaiah 53 
from 2nd century BC to Isaiah 53 as it was in 1000 AD and as we have it now, I mean, the differences are so minute as to be, uh, they are insignificant. Change, no, no, nothing of the meaning. It's all there. This is why, by the way, as far as I could see, Jewish rabbis um, have been reluctant to even include the reading of this chapter in their synagogues. One Jewish scholar went so far as to say this, because of the Christological interpretation given to the chapter by Christians, it's omitted from the series of prophetical lessons uh, for the Deuteronomy Sabbaths. And he writes, the omission is deliberate and striking. The point is, you read this and you go, how can you not see Jesus in that? What else do you do with it? And they try. They try. But you'll see it. Let's read this. I'm going to read it verse by verse and make brief comments as I go. Just kind of hit pause as we go. We're almost done here. Beginning in verse 1, Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So here we see, pause, uh, immediately kind of the meekness and humility of this servant. He didn't look like much. We might think a baby born <laughs> in, in, a, in, a, in a stable, laid in a manger because there's no room uh, for them in the inn. We might think what Jesus says, foxes have holes, uh, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We might think of Nathaniel's objection when, when uh, his brothers are saying, hey, come and see Jesus. He goes, listen, can anything good come out of Nazareth? There's nothing uh, remarkable about this man. No one's esteeming him. No one's saying this is great. Majesty, this is the King of Kings. This is the God who created all. They're going, ah. this is pretty drab. It's pretty boring. Doesn't have what I would have thought. Nothing special, hence what we read next. Verse 3 of Isaiah 53, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You can almost hear in that verse kind of the, the, the mocking crowds around the cross. He's despised. He's rejected. Matthew 27, 40 is an example. If you are the Son of God, they say, come down from the cross. If you're so powerful, then why are you still up there? Claim to be a king. Claim to be God's Son. Prove it. Now's your chance. Show us what you've got. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. It's as if Jesus would turn to those mocking him there and he'd say this, You want to know why I'm still hanging here? It's like he said to Peter, I could call down legions of angels that would wipe this thing out in a moment. You think you're powerful? You think I'm here because of your nails, your soldiers? It's love for you, my enemies. That's why I'm hanging here. I'm not bearing my own grief. I'm not carrying my own sorrows here. These are yours. I'm not being smitten and afflicted and stricken for my own sin and my own iniquities here. It's yours. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are here. Just go, just read this. Is this seriously in the Old Testament? Yeah. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity 
of us all. He takes my sickness. I get his healing. He takes my iniquity. I get his righteousness. He takes my condemnation. I get his salvation. He takes my death. I get his life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So in His sins, and it's not my righteousness. That's why He's there. He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Verse 7, Yet He opened not His mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You can just hear John the Baptist's declaration in John 1.29 here in these verses. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what's happening. That's what Isaiah is predicting. That's what Jesus is dragging into the discussion here with his disciples. Because this is what he's doing. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? The idea is still no one knew. No one, no one saw what was going on. No one. Most wonderful display of mercy the world's ever seen. And people just yawned and went home, cooked dinner, went on with their lives. Didn't get it. Verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. It's crazy. Six times in Luke 23, he's going to uh, uh, specifically bring out the fact that Jesus is, is declared as innocent. He's going to bring out Jesus, his innocence, and make it plain none of this is happening because of his own sin, but rather because of his willingness and his love to take on the sins of others. Although he had done no violence, no deceit in his mouth, he made his grave with the wicked, hung next to the criminals. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Pause. This is not ultimately man's doing. This is God's doing. Not just man's will, God's will to crush him. It's incredible. God takes men at their worst, all of our, all of our efforts to, to, to push against him, and he actually turns it for our good. The people of uh, the Jewish people, as they're turning on Jesus and they're talking to Pilate, they say, Man, let his blood be on us and our children. In other words, we want the guilt of this murder if you don't, Pilate. They have no idea that God is going to take the blood from this murder and put it on them and their children, but not in guilt, but rather to remove the guilt. To expiate, to propitiate. It's incredible. It's incredible. And here it is 700 years before. You puncture Jesus and outflows not vengeance and wrath, but grace and mercy. That's literally what happens at the cross, right? Second part of verse 10, we're almost done. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Here now with these verses, I think we move towards Sunday and Christ's resurrection triumph. It's not death that gets the last word here, but life. And we find not new life in and through him. We're his offspring, he says. We're adopted in the spirit, brought into the family of God. And finally, then we come to verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. 
Do you remember what Jesus said back to Peter? I'm praying for you. And what we drew out, well, there it is again. What's Jesus doing right now in his resurrection triumph with his crucifixion wounds? He's interceding for you and I. Lives to make intercession. Transgressors though we be. Now, this is what in Luke 22, Jesus is putting his finger on, just the fringes of this incredible interwoven tapestry, this prophetic utterance from the Old Testament. He's just touching that. And he says, this must be fulfilled. This is why I've come. This is what I'm about to do. It's so much more than taking down Rome. Hang on. It'll be the best ride of your life. But it will be hard at times. I imagine during the first part of this sermon, um, some of you may have found yourself wondering, why would anyone sign up for this? If, if he's saying it's going to be harder, if he's saying that rather than clothes, you're going to want a sword if you're going to follow me. If he's saying that's sort of, why would anyone sign up for this? Perhaps you were wondering that. This sounds rough. This sounds hard. Well, I'll tell you, here's your reason. This is why people sign up for this. This incredible, overwhelming, surprising love and grace of God through Jesus. You can know forgiveness, release from guilt and shame. You can find the Father's acceptance. You don't have to try to win everyone's approval. You can come as you are. In fact, he says, stop trying to clean up and just come. There's freedom in his arms. They're wide open. You will not find anything like this in the world around about us. There's nothing on this. This is why guys say, listen, if the world turns on me, but I get Jesus, then it's gain. The scales fall in my favor if I have him. Take it all. That's what Paul says. Philippians 3, 7 through 8. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is worth so much more. This is why, by the way, when you uh, flip open the book of Acts, kind of the, the next chapter in, in Luke's recordings, after the resurrection, you read through it. I'll tell you, there's one glaring absence. You're not going to find the apostles wielding a sword. You're not going to find them advancing the kingdom with a sword. They're going to be laying down their lives in love for others because they know the love of the one who did the same for them. The suffering servant, our great high priest, our savior and our king. And wield a sword. He let the sword fall on him because he loved and his disciples go and they do the same. You and I, we go and we do the same. You know, if you're not a believer, not a follower, come in with eyes wide open. That's fine. It will be hard. You will lose some things. People weigh that and they go, I don't know. Is it worth it? I'm not sure. Yes, it's worth it. So come. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for the gift of grace. Thank you for opening our eyes. Not just to the happy parts of following you, but the harder. God, we need, we need our eyes open to both. We want to come in knowing what to expect, having run the equation, certain that, man, it comes out in our favor. What do you gain you get the whole world, but you lose your soul. If you lose your life for Christ's sake, man, then you find it. You get everything. That's what we want, Lord. 
Thanks for open arms. Thanks for the blood. Thanks for taking our sin. Thanks for washing us clean. Thank you for filling us with joy that the world knows nothing about, and yet it was created for. In Jesus' name, amen.